1: Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
2: I want to be nice. I try and be nice, but every time we're about to hit record, one of you hits me with this Quote Why doesn't Tennessee and Alabama play their game in Atlanta? That would be an easy sellout and give an equal playing field. That's the sound of me dropping the eye, Josh. This is the Late Kick Extra podcast. I am, I'm shook. I'm shook. I pride myself on being level-headed. I can't deal with this foolishness. Now, the general rule of thumb around here when we do the Late Kick Extra mailbag, which is just wall-to-wall question and answer, some of them smarter questions than others, is once you say with all due respect, you can just say anything you want to after that. That was always Meemaw's way of life. That is our way of life on this here program. What do we... I'm not going to say what are we doing, because I know most of you are are SMHing right along with me, but what is this particular person doing? Smart people say dumb things all the time. Dumb people rarely say smart things. I always assume that if you are listening to this show, I think you're a smart person. You could say dumb things. I've been known to do it a time or two. Let's just dive into this question. That This is going to be our first question, in case you haven't realized today, because this is this is like politician speak. This is someone who just woke up on a Thursday and said, You know, something needs to change today. I don't really even know what, and it doesn't necessarily matter if it's broken or not. We just need to go change something so I can hear myself talk. The question was why doesn't Tennessee and Alabama play their game in Atlanta? Because it doesn't belong in Atlanta. Allow me to answer right along with reading the question. Because it doesn't belong in Atlanta, because one of the teams is named Alabama, the other one is named Tennessee, and unless it's December, and you've got a conference championship on the line, or it were a playoff scenario or scenario, it doesn't belong on a neutral site and a neutral venue because no one associates Tennessee football or Alabama football with Mercedes-Benz Stadium. It's not the way that works. We continue. That would be an easy sellout. Yeah, as it would be in Neyland Stadium, as it would be in Bryant-Denny Stadium. If we're in it for the gate receipts, by the way, might I remind you, those venues seat, what, about 25 or 30K more than Mercedes-Benz Stadium. We continue. And it would give an equal playing field. I don't want an equal playing field. Don't clip that individually and send it to HR. This is not a world, at least in the regular season, where you play on a level playing field, on an equal playing field. Home field advantage are three words that I thought we all understood, that I thought we all valued. Can we just, can we just talk about it for a second? Maybe you're, maybe you're in like a 2017 Tacoma and you're riding around uh, Ackworth, Georgia. If you're listening to the show, you're probably a diehard college football fan. Have you ever thought that an equal playing field when Georgia plays Tennessee is important or Alabama plays Tennessee or South Carolina plays Tennessee? No. Now, what do you think they build those big venues in your backyard for? It's so every other year, in division play at least, or in cross-division rivalry play, it's so you can have home field advantage. It's so that it's so 95 or 100,000 of your people can be a 12th man. Texas A&M has built an entire brand out of it. 12th man. Kyle Field, the 12th man. It exists for a reason. This is not broken. We don't need to fix this. We don't need an equal playing field. And 100% of the time, When Alabama goes to Neyland Stadium, I can guarantee you Tennessee is going to visit Bryant-Denny Stadium 12 months from then. So it will all even out. Last year, I was on the sideline for Alabama at Tennessee, one of the very most memorable events and experiences I've ever had. We assisted in surfing the goalpost out into the river. We were there. We were there for it all. Choked on cigar smoke on the sideline, even though it was an outdoor venue. I lived it i saw that alabama team have to be police escorted out of there and it was scary but beautiful you know kind of like a baby being born scary but beautiful in its own unique way that was beautiful not for an alabama safety maybe but for a tennessee fan who is 18 years old and therefore cannot even recall a time in their existence when Tennessee had beaten them and they were old enough to know what was going on, that was a beautiful moment. Why don't we move it to Atlanta? Because it would suck if it were moved to Atlanta. Not that there's any great petition out there to make this happen, but there have been rumors floating around, which we have tried our best to get out in front of and exacerbate to get batted down, that OU Texas could one day move to AT&T Stadium. And that would be a horrible, horrible move. And by the way, that's already a game played in a neutral site. But as you know, if you listen to Late Kick, there are two games, really one, and kind of a second one, that we grandfather in to, to, we, to accepting, even though it's on a neutral site. One of them is OU Texas. One of them is, you know, Georgia, Florida. Obviously, when they play Army-Navy, that's its own game. That is a separate conversation. But by and large, when, when some of these older grandfathered-in games are played, OU Texas being played at the Cotton Bowl, that's a college football environment. There's nothing sterile or sanitized about it at all. Quite the opposite. And likewise with Georgia-Florida. Very intense environment. I don't mind those. I certainly want them to be the exception to the rule. But there's this rumor that maybe one day they'll move that game, the OU-Texas game, to the the AT&T Stadium instead of Cotton Bowl. And I hate for that to even be circulating. So uh, we try and get out in front of it and spread the rumor so that people are forced to bat it down. I think that is our great service to the college football community. How are you doing this morning or this afternoon? You may be listening in the afternoon. I should have done the intro like five minutes ago, but I was just so worked up. To be honest, I'm, I'm still kind of out of breath. A, a more professional person, since this is the podcast, would hit pause so he could take a chug out of this Publix spring water jug, but that is not me. So I just keep right on rolling as I hydrate. This is uh, This is a Thursday recording this week. That's when you're getting it. It's been a busy week. We've been up in State College. We've been at Penn State. I was there Monday and Tuesday. Came back Wednesday. We're doing a late kick extra Thursday morning, which is when we're dropping this. Then we're doing late kick live on Thursday night. And it may be Saturday by the time you're listening to this, which means it's all already happened. Every time I go on trips, though, I promise you something. I promise you some stories when I come back. I promise you a little access, a little behind the curtain peek at where I was. And I'm going to give you that with Penn State. The comments have been interesting. We played the James Franklin interview, and they were very, very kind, and he was very, very candid. I think those of you who listened to that already know what I mean. If you haven't, the full interview is on the YouTube channel, Late Kick. You can go find it right now. But they were really, really kind, and they opened the entire program up. We got both coordinators. Uh, we got Wan Sider, running back's coach. I absolutely think that guy could be a head coach tomorrow if he really wanted to be one. Excellent. Excellent ambassador for any program. Knows the game. Former quarterback, so he gets the game from more than just the perspective of a position coach of a room. And just man, he thinks above the surface. He he has more uh, a a 10,000-foot view instead of a ground-level view. And it was refreshing and he's he's really he really makes it easy to understand why guys want to go there and play for him. But we got a bunch of players too. Talk to Drew Aller, you know, talk to Curtis Jacobs, talk to Abdul Carter talked to a lot of those guys. Here's what I gathered. And I want to ask you what you get from Penn State. What I gathered is it's a program very, very happy, but not content. They're happy that they just won the Rose Bowl. Not at all content. Every building's unique. When I go in these places, sometimes you don't even know I'm there because I'm not there to do a show. So I'll, I'll be in places sometimes, you know, between shows just on a Monday or a Wednesday, and I don't even publicize it because I'm asked not to. And I respect that. But when I can talk about it, as is the case now, I'll tell you, when you go in certain buildings, there's a different energy. When you go in Penn State's building, there's like a nervous, excited energy. And it's because they know they've got the biggest opportunity they've had to date. They don't run from it either. They don't shy away from it. They don't downplay it. Uh, But at the same time, they're focused on the task at hand. And they know they've got two big monsters in the Big Ten to deal with in Ohio State and Michigan. But also, they know there's a lot that is within their control that in some cases they haven't capitalized on. And I know NIL is a big deal nationally right now. At Penn State, it's even bigger a deal. There's been some, some infighting up there, for lack of a better term. There's been some resistance to change. At Pate State, for example, we know we're supposed to be all in on football. Football drives the revenue boat. Every other sport exists because of football. Now, these are common sense facts I'm giving you. Everyone listening to this podcast knows that. It's just that some people are unwilling to admit it publicly. And at Penn State, and they're certainly not alone in this, but at Penn State, there may be some powers that be behind the scenes up there that are of the opinion that when it comes to NIL, when it comes to revenue distribution, we've got we've to divide this pie more evenly. We've got to make sure lacrosse is taken care of. We've got we to give soccer a kickback. And also, we can fit football in there. Well, that's not the way it works. And James Franklin's been fighting that battle behind the scenes. Anytime I talk about Franklin and Penn State, you've noticed the past two years I've spoken in code. Well, now I'll just tell you out in the open because he told you this week. They have hamstrung him. They've handcuffed him a little bit behind the scenes. And there's some very powerful names up there, including some names that, even if you're the head coach of Penn State football, you're not more powerful than in the grand scheme of things. And there have been some names and some figures up there that have stood in the way of progress for that football program. It seems to me, In talking on and off the record with people up there, it seems to me like the tables may have turned over the past year. And Franklin, for his credit, was on the record as saying, we're getting more yeses now than we've ever gotten. But at the same time, before he sat down for the live show the other night with us, he also talked about how they're two years behind a lot of the big brands out there, the Ohio States, the Alabamas, et cetera, they're two years behind them. So there's catching up to do. I don't think it is torpedo their recruiting, though. That's the benefit because they already sort of have a different approach in recruiting to begin with, and the guys that are attracted to Penn State, they were never attracted because Penn State's offering them dollar for dollar more than any program in the country. They go there sometimes for a little bit different reason. But anyway, that's the stuff out in front of the curtain. Behind the curtain, let me tell you how this went down. we got a few places we want to go every spring. Penn State was absolutely one of them, won't be the last one. I will make another announcement or three or five when I can. But Penn State was one I wanted to get to. They were very accommodating. So James Franklin's office has this really big patio on it. You've got the Lash football building. And on the second floor, you've got all the administrative offices, the coaches' offices. Franklin's office obviously is a big corner office. It overlooks the three practice fields. You've got the indoor also over there. But you've got two grass fields and one evil turf field. We're not fans of turf here, but you got to have it. And then his office has a great big balcony, and it overlooks everything. So we're, we're thinking about where to set up for the show. He just says, why don't you just set up on my balcony? And that's kind of like, hey, hey, why don't you just have your concert in my backyard? Well, I didn't know that was an opportunity. I didn't know it was possible. But since you mentioned that, yeah, we'll do it. We'll gladly do it. So we set up there. Here was the dynamic. We did the interview with him, the actual sit-down interview you saw the day before. So we went in the big team, you know, movie theater-style meeting room, and we met with him. We did not have to cut a single thing. I always tell these coaches, if we're pre-recording something, feel free to go as far down any lane as you want to. And at the end, I will ask you, is there anything that you want cut out of this? Now, in a real 60-minute style interview, you know, in the pure journalism world, that's not what you do. Well, that's not the world I exist in. And so I'm I'm happy to sort of work hand-in-hand with these coaches. Franklin never said a word about excluding anything. And maybe cutting out any road we went down. He wanted it all out there. And I was happy to oblige, obviously. And he gave us some good stuff. But later on, the next day, we met with a lot of players. We've got his interview already in the can. And then Tuesday or Wednesday afternoon, what was it? Wait, Tuesday afternoon, yeah. We go watch practice. And we got to watch the whole practice. Media normally gets 15 minutes. We just got to watch the whole thing to ourselves. And that was good. And there's a lot of stuff I can't talk about as a result of that. Because it's a closed practice for a reason. That's a good team though. Really good team. Maybe maybe a little more quality depth in certain positions than you consider there to be. But we did the show that night from his patio. Here was the setting. Very unique. We're doing the show and I'm over on the balcony right against the rail so you can see everything behind me. And the stadium has the little Nittany Lion logo lit up in the background. The practice fields are lit up. Really, really great scene. Really great spectacle. Looked like a green screen. And James Franklin is in his office like 15 or 20 feet away at the window watching us as he eats his dinner out of two styrofoam boxes. So it's kind of like Ryan in the office when he got put behind the reception desk while Pam was gone. And every time he looks up, Michael is staring through the blinds in his office at him. And then they make eye contact and Michael looks away. And then he looks over there again and Michael's staring at him again. Hey, kind of the same energy. James Franklin's watching us. You can't make one false move on that patio. It's his patio after all. So he could he could evict us at any time. But that was fun. Also, probably the highlight of these trips for me is I get to pretty much always use the weight room. Everywhere I've been, they've given me the opportunity. I think everywhere, yeah. Pretty much everywhere I've been, they've given me the opportunity, if I wanted to, to use the weight room, which is an obvious yes. So at Penn State, you know, there are some things in there the public hasn't really seen. It's not up to me to show it to you. I'm sure when they're ready, they'll show it to you. It's a very, very recent expansion, recent upgrades. So there's a lot in there that I won't say it's proprietary, but probably unique to Penn State. I can tell you there are things in there I haven't seen. There's equipment in there I haven't used anywhere else. I had to ask questions. I mean, me, a supposed gym expert, I go to every one of them I can get myself into. I'm over there asking, hey, um, what, what, what does this do? Hey, what does that do? That's always a good thing because if I'm asking that question, with the exposure I've had to these places, that means you're on the forefront, the cutting edge of the gym technology scene. So I was in there, and it was a very, very interesting environment because the practice field's back up to the gym. So it's you talk about being in a perfect environment. Right before practice Wednesday, once we got done with our player interviews and right before practice, I'm getting the shoulder workout in, and there's a big garage door that takes you right from the gym out to the practice fields. So you can you can imagine how in heaven I was when you can go do a rep of overhead barbell military press and then you do a little superset and maybe some some delt raises and then you rack the weight, you got about a two minute rest so you can just waltz out on the practice field and watch a few reps of ones versus ones and then walk right back in the gym and continue your set and they pay you for it. That's the crazy part. You're actually doing it for a living. Meanwhile, 99.9% of the free college football world out there would pay to have that access, and that is not lost on me, by the way. That's because of you we get to do that, so thank you for that. Uh, What else did we see? Oh, oh, so they've got a creamery, like, you know, an ice cream maker place, a creamery. Trust me, I'm not an expert in this field, but they've got one on campus. It's a big deal. Everyone around Penn State knows it. So the creamery is on campus, and everyone told me as I was going up there, hey, make sure if you've got time, you go over to the creamery. Every place I go, people tell me the, the areas that I should visit, the places I should visit. And the creamery was one of them at Penn State. So you can imagine how welcome a relief it was when I was walking in the building and we've got, you know, we got Greg Kincaid, our, our hookup at Penn State, great dude, elect him as president next cycle if he runs, took care of us in a way that few others ever, including our parents, have taken care of us. Greg's marching us through the building and we walk by all the coolers, and he says, hey, grab any food you want. Hey, any, any drinks, any protein shakes, any milkshakes you want. And I say, hold on, Greg. Hold on just a second. You're throwing a lot at me. Did you say milkshakes? Is that, what, is that what I heard come out of your mouth? He said, oh, yeah, yeah. You know we got the creamery, right? I said, yes, I heard such things. And he said, yeah, well, take a look at that. And he pointed to this cooler, and it's like the Fort Knox of creameries. It's like the Fort Knox of milkshakes. You open it up, and it's just any any of the flavors you want, and you could have downed 20 of them if you wanted to, and they wouldn't have even been able to tell anyone made a dent in it. So I I got into the creamery stash. I got into the milk steak stash fairly significantly. Each of those bottles has 480 calories in it. I'm, a, I'm out there asking Nick Singleton, Olu Fashanu. I'm talking to all these guys that are all going to be first-round picks one day, and they're all talking about their weight gain. And then I find out what they have access to, and it's not a surprise. I don't know how anyone loses weight at Penn State. How, how do you lose weight? It's got to be the biggest roster in the Big Ten because they've got access to the same stuff that Meemaw's cows would have had access to growing up. It's such a beautiful thing. Uh, nutrition staff, they're great. Strength and conditioning staff's great. Coaching staff's great. Didn't have one bad interaction, didn't have one bad experience. And got a lot of friends in the Penn State beat up there. Saw Sean Callahan, Sean Fitz, Sean Fitz went on to work for another company that shan't be named, but I can still shout him out. That's fine. Fitz, he walks around. He's like seven foot four, sort of an ogre, like a really sweet, friendly, kind, good looking ogre whomst amongst us doesn't know the type, right? So the Penn State trip was great. Now the drum roll starts. Where are we going next? I shouldn't have started the drum roll because I'm not ready to announce it this morning, but it's going to be fun and it's going to be pretty soon. So just stay tuned. And it will be, again, a program that every one of you out there has an opinion on. I've been having a lot of fun reading your opinions on Penn State since we took this trip. So, and I'm always open to those opinions. Someone's going to be right. When you gather enough opinions, someone's going to be right. All right, let's get to the next question in the mailbag. Our close personal buddy, Diesel, up in Greenville, he asked, what negative consequences of Power 5 conferences breaking away would you expect to see? And this one is one where on the surface you may not think there are any consequences, but if you appreciate the sport, like if you are a college football fan, then there are consequences. If you're a fan of or if you're a fan of a lot of people having opportunity, which I happen to be, then there are consequences. Cuz you got to understand what we mean or what Diesel means when he says break away. Break away means the SEC and the Big 10, well, let me back up. Okay, let me let me not get out ahead of myself. We think in terms of power five right now, we think if you're if you're brand new to the sport, when people say power five, it's SEC, Big Ten, ACC, Big 12, Pac-12. Those are sort of the big boy conferences where it's understood the athleticism is a little bit better. The resources are more plentiful. Well, we're kind of in a world where more and more every day we're moving towards a big two. And that's the SEC and the Big Ten. And then a little bit of a gap or maybe not a little bit, maybe a lot of a gap. And then whatever else is out there. I'm, I'm not so sure we may not be headed to a three-tiered system where you have the big two, then you have the middle tier, which is whatever, three conferences maybe, maybe four. And then you have the lower tier. But anyway, when we talk about breaking away, all we're talking about is the most powerful conferences. So clearly the SEC and the Big Ten would be amongst them. If there's more, great. But let's say at least the SEC and the Big Ten. We're talking about them looking around in the room and saying, we're powerful enough. We don't need to be associated with the NCAA. We don't need NCAA affiliation. We're going to break away. We're going to do our own thing. We're going to have our own guidance. We're going to have our own rules. We're going to broker our own TV deals, which they already do. We're not going to have governance from an outside entity. We're going to govern internally. Could happen. Could happen. A lot of people think it's going to happen one day five minutes from now, 15 years from now, but a lot of people think it's going to happen. Well, when it does happen, what does that mean? Well, it means that a lot of the resource dries up, a lot of the money that is fed down, that trickles a little bit down to the, what you would call the G5 level, and then the FCS level, it dries up, because you've got to think, and I don't know this to be a fact, but you got to think if there is a splitting away, the scheduling model, starts to include only those kinds of teams. So there is no there is no Ohio State playing Miami of Ohio. There is no Georgia playing Louisiana Monroe. I would not think that would be in the cards. And you may not care about that. In fact, you may be like me. You may say good. The more competitive the schedule, the more entertaining the product is, the better. And yeah, from a pure fall Saturday television perspective, that's true. That's where we have to stop and ask ourselves, how do we balance what we say we care about? I'm I'm the same as you. If you're out there rooting for that, I'm the same way you are. I love more competitive matchups. I'd a whole lot rather watch Georgia play LSU more often than I see him play Louisiana Monroe. All due respect to the Warhawks, that's, that's the way it is. There's the Bruce Hornsby reference. That's just the way it is. Uh, maybe some things will never change. Maybe they will. But what else do we care about? Because I would be a liar if I said the end. I just told you like, what, two minutes ago that I care about opportunity. Well, I care about the opportunity for Louisiana Monroe football to exist and for those players on scholarship to have that opportunity. Well, they rely on that $750,000 paycheck where they get to go play Georgia. Maybe they get beat 48 to three and they're in a coma on the way home, but they got the paycheck. And that's going into a scholarship fund, and that's going into facility upgrades and enhancements, and that's going into an experience that maybe a left guard leverages and utilizes into a springboard to go and become a sixth-round draft pick. And he holds down a reserve spot on an NFL roster with three different clubs for seven years, ends up starting in the twilight of his career for another three years, gets himself into that NFL retirement conversation, NFL pension conversation, changes his entire life financially. And he was never a name that was at the forefront of any all pro conversation, but he was in the mix because Louisiana Monroe football put him on the radar and he's in the mix and all the contacts and the network of relationships that he built sets him up to where when he's 33 years old, he starts his own company and ends up changing the lives of many, many more people. It, it is amazing what that platform can do. There is no quantifiable way to know how many of those opportunities we are erasing when we detach major, major college football from just kind of major college football. But I know it's there. I know it. I certainly know we're not adding opportunities. Now, we're adding some entertainment opportunities for me and you. And do we owe it to the Louisiana Monroes of the world? I guess technically we don't. But, you know, I don't owe it to an old lady who's 103 years old and can barely look up because she's hunched over as she's using her walker to get around. I don't owe it to her to open the door for her. I'm going to open the door for her. Not because any law tells me to. Common sense, ethics, morals, they tell me to. And I think from those lenses, I know it's the dirty word to talk about that these days in college athletics, morality and ethics and whatnot. But from those lenses, how do you justify that? I don't know. I I have trouble with it. That's why I have trouble putting myself in the shoes of a major college football commissioner. You know, I go back and forth with some of you all the time on this about how you think those guys are so greedy and they're just looking out for their best interest. And you're kind of right. You're kind of right. That's their job. They are not philanthropists. They don't hire Greg Sankey to look out for the best interest of the entire sport. Hopefully, the decisions that he makes can align with what's in the best interest of the sport. And I think he has to value that because the greater good of the SEC is served when it's existing against the backdrop of a really strong college football. But when OU and Texas are out there and they're available and they're knocking on your door and you know if you don't open it, they're just going to go to the Big Ten, it's not greedy to snatch them up. It's competitive and economical common sense to snatch them up. There is no other option. You don't have the option to say no if you want to keep your job, that is. So then we get a little ways down the road. And it comes time to make the decision. Do you press the button? Do you split away? And do you cost thousands of folks opportunities in the process while at the same time propping yourself up for a huge financial gain? I don't envy the people that have to make those decisions. I know from my perspective, I hope it doesn't happen. I think that's where I stand on it. But then again, my perspective is not the same. My vantage point's not the same as theirs. Let's move it on here. Good mailbag. Good, good, healthy mailbag. Could probably use this one for the next three shows. Brandon from Norman, Oklahoma. He asked, do you feel that over-recruiting a position group is necessary for college football programs to do in today's transfer portal age? Signing a quarterback every year, for example. Yes, because you can't know what you don't know. I was talking about this with someone at Penn State the other day, just kind of a staffer. I was talking about how if I were running a program, if I'm at Pate State, I'm recruiting quarterbacks every year. I don't care if I have Drew Aller. I don't care if I just got Jackson Smolick at USC. I don't care if I got Caleb Williams now and I got Malachi Nelson in the wings. I'm recruiting one every year because you cannot possibly know in the portal age what the future holds. And as it was explained to me, and I'll reiterate to you guys, what changed was not the portal. What changed is the one-time exemption. In other words, being able to transfer without penalty. That's what changed. People could always transfer. They just hardly ever did because they were going to have to sit out a year. And now that you don't have to sit out a year on the first transfer, that opens the floodgates. So if I'm putting together a roster, especially with the most important position group in mind, how do you not? How do you ever plan out the next three or four years when you can't know what the three or four weeks in front of you after spring could hold? Sometimes you don't even know what the next three or four seconds holds, i.e. right now.
0: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend
2: today. Boom! Got him! And I'm recording this by myself. So I'm not even having to listen to Colin or Jesse or Bradley tell me that was or wasn't an unexpected ad drop. But selfishly, I think that's some of the best work I've ever done. No one saw it coming. And someone will claim they did, just like someone will win the lottery tonight. But it doesn't mean there was any skill behind picking those numbers, and I don't think there was any skill behind knowing that ad toss was coming. If you're new to the game, I try and fool you as best I can with when the ad toss is coming. Because frankly, sometimes it's hard to make ad tosses fun. And so this is the way we try and do it. Anyway, back to this conversation. Yes, yes, I would over-recruit the position. So the risk in gathering a lot of quarterbacks is obvious. It is what? Well, it is, well, what if you scare some guys away? What What if some guys on your roster transfer because you went and got another player? So be it, is my answer. So be it. Either way, I won. Because if I have a guy on my roster already and I recruit another one, I'm finding out about him. I'm finding out how much he believes in himself. I'm finding out how hardened his competitive edge is. And if it's not good enough and he transfers out, I found out. I found out that guy did not want any part of the foxhole here before I he, before he showed me on the field. Sometimes you find out guys aren't cut out for it on the field. Well, then it's too late. They're costing you games. You want to find that stuff out long before it's third down and four in week three of the season. And if I bring in a quarterback that's good enough to scare some of my existing quarterbacks away, I probably brought in a pretty good one. And so the aggregate is a lot of times when you bring a guy in and it causes roster churn, I think far more times than not, it means you upgraded your roster. Not all the time, but far more times than not. Here is a really good question from Americus, Georgia. How many of you know where that is, by the way? I do. The question from Americus, I'm stalling so I can pull it back up because I kind of dropped the window. I remember it. I don't have to look it up exactly. So the question was, what would have happened if Saban actually left for Texas? And some of you know about this story. Others don't. Uh, Nick Saban reportedly, and I say reportedly because I've never gotten him to confirm it with me, but Nick Saban reportedly considered leaving for Texas in the early to mid-20-teens. Can't remember the exact year, but think uh, 2011 or 12 or 13, somewhere around there. Nick Saban considered leaving. I believe this is a true story. I have enough people I trust that have told me that's a true story. So what would happen then? What would what would happen if Nick Saban was the head coach at Texas for the last ten years? Well, he wouldn't have been fired, so I feel confident in saying he'd still be there today. What would Alabama have done? Because they would have been the top program in the country at that point. And all of a sudden, there's a job opening, and it's not open because Saban retired. It's because Saban went somewhere else, and he's not in your conference, so you don't necessarily have to play him every year. I think, man, it's it's a actually a very very complex exercise. Because the first thing I think of is where would Alabama have gone? Who would they have gone after? I throw that out to you. Who who would Alabama have gone after? Let's just say the year was 2013. I can't remember exactly. Let's say the year was 2013. Who um, Who does Alabama go after as their head coach? But anyway, so if Saban's at Texas, here's what I think happens. Texas has won multiple national championships by now. I think that is undisputably clear or indisputably clear. I'm never certain on which word to use. It's a tough one. And I also don't really care enough to go back and delete this and make sure I look it up and say it the right way. This is raw immunity. This is this is as is. You get it as is. Probably also immunity. So if Saban goes to Texas, I think they've got multiple titles. Here's what I wonder about, though. The whole conversation we're having right now about conference realignment, that would have come much earlier, I think. I think that would have happened because Nick Saban would have run roughshod over the Big 12. I think that would have happened. There would have been competition from Oklahoma And Oklahoma's not going anywhere. Now, in this scenario, Oklahoma doesn't just fall off a cliff. I think Oklahoma would have ended up doing what Auburn has done to Alabama while Saban's been there. They bite him a few times, but Saban has the upper hand because he's better than whoever Oklahoma has had. And he would have recruited better, and he would have fortified the lines of scrimmage, and he would have kept more Texas kids from going to Oklahoma, blah, blah, blah. But think about it in bigger terms. Think about Alabama- versus Texas Tech. Think about Alabama versus Kansas. And I'm saying it intentionally that way because what Alabama has been, that's what Texas would be. So think about watching a bunch of Alabama versus Kansas State, Alabama versus Oklahoma State. I think we all know more times than not how that season's turning out. And it would have been boring. You would have had a bunch of blowouts. It would have gotten boring. And Saban wouldn't have liked it either because he still would have looked at the SEC and the Big Ten and known we fit there. We, we are the biggest brand. Texas would be the biggest brand in the sport with Saban at, at Texas. They would be dominating individually, but collectively the conference wouldn't be. And I think it, you would have come to feel like the conference is holding Texas back and the conference is holding Nick Saban back a little bit. And I think he would have wanted higher level competition, just knowing everything I know about him. Because uh, he's been in the SEC and even demanding that they play more conference games in the SEC. So I think he would have moved and would have used his power – to either expand the Big 12 or fortify the Big 12 in some way, or more likely, he would have tried to precipitate negotiations to get Texas out of the Big 12. I think that would have happened as it just did. I think it would have happened like a decade sooner. And I think Oklahoma would have tagged right along with them. And you got to remember also, this is right around the time. This is not too long after the time a and had just gone to the SEC. So a and went over there, I think their first year may have been 2012, and Missouri went over there, too. So you would have already had the gateway open. They would have probably just left the door open. And then Texas and OU come through it, too. and Or maybe they go to the Big Ten. Or maybe that deal where they went to the Pac-12 and the Pac-16 almost happened. Maybe that's how it goes down. And then also you've got just the, the collateral impact of, well, if Nick Saban's not at Alabama, um, is Mark Richt randomly still at Georgia? Because Georgia felt the heat, as did the rest of the league, from Alabama, And, you know, in 2012, Rick can't get over the hump, just barely. They lose to Alabama. A couple years later, he's out. Well, three years later, I think he's out. And he's out in a year where Bama comes in there and spanks him in Athens. Well, if Saban's not there, maybe that doesn't happen. Therefore, hey, maybe Kirby Smart's the head coach. Maybe Kirby Smart goes to Texas with Saban, puts in a few years. Maybe Alabama hires Kirby Smart. Maybe Smart's at Alabama. And then he succeeds there. And we find out Georgia is always where he wanted to be. And maybe Smart ends up bringing Alabama to the pinnacle. And then Georgia looks at Smart and says, we want you to do that here. And then there's a bidding war for Kirby Smart between two of the premier brands in the SEC. And in that sense, it's Bama, Georgia, pretty much like it is now, just with different names. Fun exercise. Uh, fruitless because we can't know the end, but fun exercise. we got a fun evening in store. If you're listening on Thursday, hey, Thursday night. So tonight we got Late Kick Live. And if you listen on pod, thank you for that as well. We've got the number one college football podcast in the world as of today. We've got the number one college football show in the digital media world as of today. So thank you across all fronts. I don't really care how you watch or listen. Just as long as you're subscribed, you're more than giving us everything we could ask for. Uh, So anyway, if you listen on pod, it'll be in your feed tomorrow morning. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Everything's possible because of you guys. Until next time, for junior producer Bradley, who will be cutting this up for me, we got producer Jesse, we got director Colin. It's not an army, but it's the only fighters I need. I'm Josh Pate. Thanks so much for listening. Take care, have a great rest of your day, and God bless.